in 2 Chronicles chapter number 20. Let's stand together and we'll look at the first four verses to begin. It came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them other beside the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side Syria. And behold, they be in Hazazon Tamar, which is in Gede. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. I want to look at here tonight in these few moments we have on Jehoshaphat and his powerful praying. Or what do we need to understand about prayer when you need a miracle? Do you need a miracle tonight? If you need God to do a work in your life, God wants to do the kind of work that would be miraculous, meaning God wants to do it. And if it's something you can do, then you don't really need God to do it. But God wants us to recognize we need to be in a place where God has to be the one to do it. Why? Because whatever God does, He does well. He does far better than what we can do. And if you're in need of a miracle tonight, then there's some things that would help us, I believe, to be reminded, refreshed, or instructed regarding prayer. Thank you. Please be seated. Have you ever been in a situation where you or your children needed a miracle, but you didn't know where to turn? Have you ever felt like everybody had conspired against you and everything was coming down on you and you've just flat out needed a miracle? Now that is where King Jehoshaphat finds himself in 2 Chronicles chapter number 20. And we're looking at this on what we need to recognize, remember, understand when it comes to this matter of needing a miracle or we find ourselves in a corner, we find ourselves in a mess. If we're ever going to see the mighty power of God, then we must have a purposeful ministry of prayer. We've been seeing some things around here. We've been witnessing the mercy drops because God has been answering prayer and blessing our prayer ministry. Just as we sung that song a little bit ago. But all oh, for the showers we need. And all oh, for the showers we plead. And here in 2 Chronicles 20. Because of the bad news that King Jehoshaphat received. He's got the armies against him. He calls for a corporate great prayer meeting. I wonder what would happen if Canaan Baptist Church stayed on its knees before God. Pray without ceasing is that spirit of prayer. Look at it in verse number 12. Oh, our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us, neither know we what to do. Have you ever found yourself there? I don't know what to do. But notice what he says. But our eye are upon thee. That's what he prayed. We see in this passage that when we need a miracle, there's only one thing to do and, and only one place to go, and that is to God. 
When you need a miracle, you need to learn to pray and to seek the Lord. I want you to see the first thing that happens when we pray. Number one tonight, I think there's five things here. Number one, when we pray, we're partnering with God. Prayer partners with God. And the first thing that happens when you pray is that prayer, it tunes you in with God. It gives you the perspective of what is happening in your life from God's point of view rather than man's point of view. They came to Jehoshaphat and they said, there are three armies coming against you. And you know that we don't have the strength to face these armies. What in the world are we going to do? And the Bible says that Jehoshaphat feared. That's what happened. He feared. And he set his face to seek the Lord his God. And the whole nation began to pray. Haven't we seen a, a surplus of fear? And people taking advantage of fear? Jehoshaphat was one who was truly afraid, but he did something about it. He recognized our eyes need to be upon God. And when we begin to pray, we are then getting in touch with God. Why? Because when you get in touch with God, what is there to fear? God's not given to us a spirit of fear. And so when you are out of touch with God, you're going to be prone to fear a lot of things. We're fearing getting sick, and they're saying that, that COVID is going to, to come back upon us. Well, I'm sure it will when the election comes around. It'll probably be about, about how it works. Whatever, whatever, what, whatever they want to bring down the pipe. But I want to tell you this, Jesus is the one who said, you better not fear what shall come upon your body or what man can do to your body. You better fear what God can do with your soul. In other words, the eternal ought to always take precedence over the spiritual. Again, how many churches shut down out of fear when the very thing we needed was to assemble together and partner with God. We get in touch with God. We see things from God's viewpoint. And so he, Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat began to fast and he began to pray. And when something happens in our life, prayer ought to be our first thought, not our last resort. Some people have the attitude, well, we're in a pretty bad situation. We've done everything we can do. Maybe we ought to pray. All we can do now is pray. All we can do is pray. We should have been praying in the first place. Because you see, what we need must come from God. And we've got to get in tune in uh, with God and see what God has in mind. Now prayer tunes us into the will of God for our life. And, and there were three parts to his prayer. Notice in verse number six. Jehoshaphat said, O Lord God of our fathers, Art not thou God in heaven? And rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thy hand is there not power and might to uh, so that none is able to withstand thee? What is he doing in this prayer? Number one, in this matter of partnering with God in prayer, he's reminding himself of who God is. I tell you, there's nothing that will encourage you more than to remind yourself who it is you're partnering with. 
in the midst of an impossible situation, when we think there's no hope, we need to do what Jehoshaphat did. Oh, Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven? Do you think God is saying, well, am I? You know, is that me? No, Jehoshaphat is praying because he's saying, that's who I need to partner with. God, this is who you are. And he's not reminding God for God's sake. He's reminding himself. We need to remember who God is, that our God is sovereign. Our God is on his throne. That our problems have not overwhelmed God. God's never said, I got to take a break. You're driving me nuts. No. Our problems may be overwhelming to us, but with God, all things are possible. So in his prayer, he tuned into God and he reminded himself who God truly is. Then another thing, notice in verse seven, in his prayer, art not thou our God? who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and gavest it to, thy, to the seed of Abraham, thy friend forever. Not only did he remind himself of who God is, now he's reminded, he reminds himself of what God has done. Lord, aren't you the same God that helped us in the past? Aren't you the God that drove the enemy out when we came into this land? God, aren't you the God who did all these mighty things? You did it then? Well, what's the third thing he prayed? Well, why is he reminding himself of who God is? Why is he reminding himself of what God did? Because the third thing he's asking in the remaining prayer is this. God, do it again. Do it again. He said, God, how about a repeat performance of your mighty power? God, how about doing for us now what you did for us way back then? And that's what he's saying in verse number 8 and 9 and 10 and, um, and 11 and verse number 12. He's saying, God, do it again. Listen, if you're facing an impossible situation in your life and you need a miracle from God and only a miracle will do, then tune in to God through prayer. Partner with God in prayer. And you will remind yourself of who God is. And you will remind yourself of what God has done so that you can then more effectively and engagingly pray, God, would you do it again? I want you to see a second thing. When we pray, it shows our dependence upon God. Prayer shows our dependence upon God. Why are we putting such an emphasis upon prayer? Well, because Jesus prayed, and if Jesus is God and he prayed, then how much more should you and I who are not God should be praying? Why did Jesus pray so much? Because he said, everything that I do, I do not do independent of my Father, meaning I'm dependent upon the Father. And if he was God depending upon his Father, then how much more should you and I who are not deity be dependent upon God? You know why you don't pray? It's because you're not depending upon God. See, he confessed his own inadequacy and he confessed God's mighty power. Notice in verse number two. He says, Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee. Verse three. So Jehoshaphat feared, and he set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. See, God's power 
is what he was in need of. And he placed his situation before the Lord and he acknowledged his weakness, but he also claimed God's power. Life's troubles often will overwhelm us, bringing us face to face with our own helplessness. And that's what bothers us a lot of times. We're so reminded at certain crisis, I'm just human. And that's what God wants us to remember. Because in our humanity, we are not God. But He is. And that's the time to keep our eyes on God and wait for His wisdom and His deliverance. We can be assured that there's no crisis beyond God's control. When you pray, it shows that you're not depending upon what you can do. You're depending upon what God can do. Have you ever felt like this little poem? The world had a hopeful beginning, but man spoiled it by sinning. We trust the story will end to God's glory, but right now it seems that the other side is winning. And that's how we feel a lot of times. We feel that maybe in the end it will all come out, but right now we're losing. We feel that the devil is winning. We feel that Satan is having the victory. We see Satan having his day. But when we come to God in prayer for a miracle, then we're showing our dependence is upon God who never sleeps nor slumbers, a God who hasn't lost his power, a God who is not detached, a God who is sovereign and in control. We are saying that we have no might against this problem. We have no solution. God, we don't know what to do, but our trust is in Thee. Listen, how does a person become a Christian? It's not by what you do. Acts 16, 31, man said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the preacher didn't look back and say, well, you need to keep the Ten Commandments. You need to keep the golden rule. You need to be, do the best you can. Try to go to church. Try to give to the poor and live a good life. And, and maybe then you'll be saved. No, the answer was believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. See, the difference between Christianity, true Christianity, not Christianity in general, meaning I believe the Bible, I believe there's a God, but talking about this matter of Bible salvation, it's not based upon what you do, it's based upon the decision that you make. If I ask you, are you married? Well, I bought a wedding dress. He bought a tuxedo. Uh, we rented the church. We had a preacher. Uh, we had wedding bands. We had cake. We had punch. I uh, see um, we had uh, a honeymoon. We had, and we've got a bunch of bills. Yes, I think we're married. No, it's not based upon how much you did. It's based upon, did you decide, did you decide, did the preacher declare were you married? What determines whether or not we're a child of God? Not whether or not you're a good person because the Bible says there's none that are good. There are none that seek after God. All have sinned. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. How many might all be? Would that include every single person? If I say all of you are invited... To, um, to partake of, of birthday cake and ice cream. You say, all, uh, would that include me? Well, if you're part of all, then yes, that's you. 
Well, I didn't know if you meant all the, uh, uh, the, the, the rich people, all the, the fun people. All. No, if I, we say all are invited, all under the sound of my voice are invited. And when the Bible says all have sin, all have sin and come short of God's standard. All. And so what we need is what Jesus did 2,000 years ago that we're celebrating this week. He came to seek and to save all those who are lost. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus went to the cross because only a perfect, spotless, sinless lamb of God could take the place of a sinful world dying and going to hell. Jesus was not jumped. He was not ambushed. He was not drug away. He was not murdered. He gave his life. He laid his life down. He came. He came for the purpose. The reason he was born as little baby Jesus in a manger is so that 33 and a half years later, he could die as the sinless son substitute of God for your sin and mine. And he went to the cross because he loves you. Now, the devil, he always tries to corrupt what Jesus Christ has created. And so world religion was created. World religion says if you want forgiveness of sin and eternal life, you've got to do, do the best you can. Oh, believe in Jesus if you want to. But you've got to do the best you can. And the, one of the great problems with doing anything to get forgiveness of sins, eternal life, whether it be taking catechism or communion or, or church membership or baptism or sprinkling or the good golden rule or the 10, 20, 30, 613 commandments, whatever it might be, when you begin to do something to get eternal life, forgiveness of sins, a home in heaven, then you're saying, Jesus, what you did is not enough. See, you don't get into heaven because of your good intentions. You only get to heaven because the one who lives there takes you there. You can't buy a place in heaven. You can't rent it. Do you know you can't sneak into there either? The only way you can get there is by making a decision to put your faith and your trust and your dependence upon the only one who can save you. Somebody comes to me and says, preacher, would you save me? If I could, I would, but I can't. Why? Because I'm not a savior. I didn't die for you. Even if I did die for you, I wasn't resurrected. And even if I was resurrected to save you, I wasn't sinless. For all have sinned. All have sinned. Somebody even said that, that uh, the only reason why the Pope thinks he's sinless is because he's not married. If he were married, his wife would tell him otherwise. Because the Bible says all have sinned. All have sinned. All need a Savior. Listen, based upon the religion of the world, no one, based upon religion, world religion, whatever that religion may be, no one knows if they've done enough. 
So when someone tells me I'm this or 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 this and I'm doing the best that I can, the question is, if you died right now, are you 100% certain that all of your sins, your past sins, today's sins, and even your future sins are washed away and you right now have eternal life? Are you 100% sure? And they might, they might be able to say, because they think I've done enough today. I've gone to confessional. I've kept the golden rule. I haven't shot anybody. I haven't cussed anybody out today. I haven't thought any bad thoughts about my mother-in-law. So today I'm up to speed. And yes, if I died right now, my, the, the account is settled and I'm good to go if I died right now. So that's why we ask the question, if you died right now or if you die five years from now, are you right now 100% certain that all of your sins, all of your past sins, all of today's sins and all of your future sins are right now forgiven and you right now have eternal life? And no religion of this world can say, I am 100% certain. Why? Because any religion that has works built into it, you got to be baptized. You got to keep the Ten Commandments. You've got to live a good life. You've got to make sure your confession is up to date. You will never have done enough. But there was one who loved you 2,000 years ago. And he came to this earth and he walked because he loves you. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ stretched out his arms and he died for us. Why? Because you can never do enough to get into, you could never do enough to get to heaven. So you say, how do I get to heaven? You've got to know this, sin is your problem. Sin is your problem. The Bible says, commandment number three, don't you take God's name in vain. You ever said, oh my, and you plug in God's name? You broke commandment number three. Commandment number five says, honor thy father and thy mother. It doesn't say obey mom and dad, it says honor. Obey means to do what your parents tell you to do. Honor means to do it with the right attitude. Anytime you ever sighed a sigh of disgust, roll your eyes, talk back, you broke commandment number five. In fact, the Bible says in commandment number nine, don't lie. How many lies do you have to tell in order to be a liar? How many murders do you have to commit in order to be a murderer? One. So one time you violate commandment number three, you're called a sinner. One time you violate commandment number five, you're called a sinner because you dishonored your parents. The Bible says commandment number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. Adultery is, yes, when you break your wedding vows, but Jesus said adultery is also when a man looks upon a woman to lust after her. He's guilty of committing adultery with her already in his heart. In other words, we've mentioned just a few out of the 10 commandments, and there's 613 of these. The commandments were never given to help you get into heaven. The commandments were given to show you you need a Savior to take you there. Sin is your problem. Hell is the consequence. Are you remembering Jesus preached more on hell than he did on heaven? And by the way, there is no purgatory. 
If you can ever find purgatory in the Bible, I will give you $5,000 from Brother Autry. But there is no purgatory. There is no purgatory. There is no purgatory in the Bible. But there is a place called heaven and there is a place called hell. And you and I will live in one of the places, heaven or hell, as long as God lives and he will live for an eternity. And how you live upon this earth does not determine where you spend an eternity. No, no. The decision you make with Jesus determines where you spend an eternity. Good people don't go to heaven. Bad people don't go to hell. Prepared people go to heaven. Unprepared people go to hell. Sin is your problem. Hell's the consequence. Jesus is the answer. We don't preach religion. You don't need more religion. You need Jesus. That's a relationship. And when you realize I am a sinner, I am deserving of hell, and Jesus is the answer. I don't want my sin. I don't want to go to hell. I need Jesus. What do I do? If you were drowning and you realize I'm not going to make it, they think I'm swimming, but I'm not. I'm going under, and they don't, they're not noticing me. What, what, what would you do? Help! And anyone who's concerned and aware would see that's all I need to know. But how much more significant is the one who died for you when you recognize sin is your problem, hell's a consequence, you need Jesus, and you cry out, Lord, help. And you cry out to him. You think Jesus is going to say, well, I think you need to work for it a little bit more. No, that's why he came. When you cry out, Lord, save me. Now, he didn't come to save you from a bad job. He didn't come to save you from your physical illness, though he can. But what good would it do if he helped you out with your job and helped deliver you from cancer, but you die and go to hell? He ultimately came to save you and I from sin and hell. How do you get saved? You put your dependence upon the Savior. Was there ever a time where you put your faith and your trust and your dependence upon Jesus? You say, I'm a member of a church. What does that mean? It means you better get saved because a church cannot save you. It cannot, it never has, it never will. It doesn't have the capability. You say, I've been baptized many times. You can drink the baptismal water. It'll not wash your sins away. You better get saved. Was there ever a time you knew sin was your problem, hell was your consequence, Jesus was your answer, I don't want my sin, I don't want to go to hell, I need Jesus. You say, preacher, you're making me uncomfortable. Five seconds in hell, you'll be uncomfortable for the rest of eternity. I'm not here to make you uncomfortable. I'm here to tell you there's a Jesus that will change your life and your eternity. So when you and I get saved by depending upon him, no wonder we want to spend time in prayer because it shows our dependence upon the one who saved us. I got to quickly hurry. I want you to see the third thing. Prayer focuses our attention on God rather than circumstances. Prayer focuses our attention on God rather than the circumstances. Notice in verse number 12 again. Our God, oh, our God, wilt not thou, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. You know what the problem is with the recession here in America? Too many believers are reading the news blogs and not reading the word of God. 
We've had our attention faced upon the circumstances, but we don't have our attention faced upon the problem solver and the God who is above the circumstances. If you're going through a problem in your life, you need a miracle, you, you think that there's no way out, no solution, it's difficult to know what to do. You may find yourself at your wit's end. Listen, what prayer does is it focuses our attention on God. See, when somebody skips out on prayer meeting, what they're saying is, we don't need God. I'm telling you, ladies, you, you, you want your, your family to be saturated with God. You ought to be encouraging your husband, get to men's prayer. What's men's prayer about? You say, it's about beating us up. No, it's about putting our attention upon God to solve the problems that are beating you up. But when we don't join in prayer, we're saying, I need that sleep more than I need God. Listen, what prayer does is focus our attention on God. You cannot pray and worry at the same time. You can't. You cannot pray and fear at the same time. Jehoshaphat feared, but then he began to seek the Lord. And when he began to seek the Lord, the fear left him. And that's what he says in verse number number two. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee. And notice in verse number three, Jehoshaphat feared. And when he feared, he said, this isn't right. And he set himself to seek the Lord. In verse 12, we've read it a couple times. He put his eyes upon God. When you begin to pray, fear leaves you and you begin to focus your attention on God. You know, I've been guilty of doing so many times in my life, so many times I find myself looking at the problem. I study the problem. I'm good at it. I I try to figure out the problem and I'm pretty good at it. I wrestle with the problem without having sense enough to know that I just can't flat out solve the problem. I'm not going to solve the problem by worrying about it and looking at it by trying. I need to get my eyes off my problem, put my eyes on the problem solver, the Lord Jesus Christ. You ask Christians, how are you doing? Pretty good under the circumstances. Well, get out from underneath them. You know, you're supposed to be on top of your circumstances like you're supposed to be sleeping on top of the mattress, not underneath it. As as believers, the Bible says we have victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So get our eyes off the problems. Corey Ten Boom said, look at the world around you, you'll be distressed. Look within, you'll be depressed. But look at Jesus and you'll be at rest. Here's a fourth thing. Notice in verse number 15. And he said, Hearken ye all Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem and thou King Jehoshaphat. Listen. Thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Wasn't he the king? Weren't they coming down on him? And you can look at it and say, I'm in this situation. It's got my name on the bill. I'm the one in this conflict. But what happens when we pray is that number four, prayer places our problem in the hands of God. See, a lot of us have stooped shoulders from an atlas complex. 
Remember Atlas, the mythological figure who carried the world on his shoulders? So many of us are trying to carry the problems of life on our shoulders. We're trying to handle the problems that belong to God. If you're a child of God today, your problem is God's problem because you belong to God. This is God's church. This is God's business. We belong to him. It's in his hands. But it's not until we pray that we consciously put the problem into the hands of God and say, God, here it is. A lot of us are tired and weary and worn out and depressed and discouraged because we've been trying to handle the problems that only God can handle. And if we'll give those things to God and get out of the business of managing the problems of the entire world and trying to run our own lives and try to solve our own difficulties and just say, Lord, I belong to you. This is a problem. It belongs to you. God, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I turn it over to you. I place it in your hands. Then God will be in the business of working miracles in your life. Number, number five, this is the last one. Notice in verse 17. Notice, God says, ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Now notice it. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord. What's the next word? Worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the children, the Kohathites, and of the children of the Korhites stood up to, what's the word? Praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. Number five. Prayer, it glorifies God in advance of the answer. Prayer glorifies God in advance of the answer. So he says in verse 17, you don't need to fight this battle. So that means that they get to stay home. They don't have to do anything. No, no they still have to go out. But God says, I'm going to take care of it. You've got to trust and you've got to obey. Peter had to step out of the boat. David still charged Goliath. But God is the one who's fighting. And so he says to them, the battle is the Lord's. You don't have to carry it on your shoulders. You've got to go. You've got to engage. But you don't carry this weight on your shoulders. God does. And he says to them, stand ye still. Meaning... Stand firm in the Lord. Stand ye still and see the salvation of the Lord. And then we saw in verse 21 what happened. Well, he appointed singers. Notice in verse 21. And when he had consulted with the people, this is all before the battle. When he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord that should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and to say, praise the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. Now, how do you like that for a battle plan? What do you think MacArthur would have done with that battle plan? General Patton would have had a heart attack. 
Because before the battle actually occurs, God says, here's what I want you to do. The choir's going to go out. The musicians are going to go out in front of the army. And Brother Autry, he's going to lead in. God is so good. He's so good to me. Yeah, you say, that's, that's great. I'd like to see that in movie form. I bet that would have been really good. And God says, I want you to see it in your form. What kind of battle plan is that? For the choir to lead the army. But you see what God is doing is he's giving us an example, the power of praise in an impossible situation. Let me ask you, let me ask you about the problem that you're facing in life. The thing which you need a miracle from God and an answer from God for. Have you thanked God? Have you already thanked him? For how he's going to answer it? Have you thanked God for how he's going to do it? How is God going to get the glory for himself in the midst of it? How is God going to give the victory? See, when are you going to start praising God for that? When, when are you going to, one of the beautiful things in our prayer meetings is to watch the, the spirit of prayer turn into a spirit of praise. When are you going to start praising God for it? You say, well, whenever God does it. No, no, you're missing it. Do you know that there's a difference between praise and gratitude? See, gratitude is thanking God for what he has already done. That's just gratitude. Somebody gives you something, you say, thank you. Praise, however, is thanking God in advance that he's going to do whatever he said he's going to do based upon his promises. And it's standing firm on his truth. It's standing firm on his word. And it's glorifying God. And it's praising God through prayer that he's going to show up and do it before he ever does it. Remember the order here. They sought the Lord. That's what he did. He heard, this is bad news. He got scared, fear. He sought the Lord. Number two, they heard the Lord. Notice in verse number 14 through 17, this, their prayer is, is um, in verse number five through verse number 12, and then verse number 13 um, we find that God comes into the situation, verse 14, the spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation, verse 15, God says to them, so they sought the Lord, they heard the Lord, and then what happened? They praised the Lord. The choir praised God after hearing the word of God. You know what ought to be happening in our invitations Sometimes we're getting right with God, we're confessing to God, we're thanking God for speaking to us, but sometimes there ought to be just some praising God because we know God convinced us of Bible truth, of who He is, what He's done in the past, what He can do in the future, and we just come and say, God, I want to praise you. I don't want to just thank you for what you've done. I want to praise you for what you're going to do. And that's what they did. 
And then they sang and praised him after the victory. The choir praised God after God gave his word. They praised him before the battle, verse 21. And they praised him after the victory, verse 26 through 28. And by the way, God did give great victory. You've heard the phrase, prayer changes things. You know, praise changes things. You know why? Because praise changes people. They praise change it because you're putting confidence. Without faith, it's impossible to please who? And praise is standing upon the promises and the veracity of the word of God. And when you praise, it's changing the person to come into greater confidence with God. And it makes us the channels and the kind of people that God can work through. True praise, it involves faith. It involves hope. It involves love. The greatest of the Christian's armory. Do you need a miracle today? Then come to God in prayer. Place it in the hands of God. Show your dependence upon God. Focus on Him, not your problem. Begin to praise Him for the victory before the victory comes. And then when the victory comes, your life will be a testimony to Jesus. This is a powerful example, Jehoshaphat. For Christians as to how to respond when a crisis occurs and how we can prevail with God's strength. If you're going through an impossible situation, it's just a blessing in the making. Let's stand together, please.